Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There has been a dramatic development in the unsolved murder of young Penny Hill. There is now a $1 million reward for any information that leads to a conviction. If anyone has any information at all that may assist police, now is the time to come forward. It doesn't. I'm Marianne Harris. Welcome to The Rockstar and The Nanny, the new podcast from the true crime series, New Idea Investigates. Some listeners may find some of the content in this podcast distressing. Penny had left her home in country Narrabri to start her first job as a nanny, looking after the three small children of Cole Bajant, former Aussie rock star with the band Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Then just three days later... The tiny northwest town of Kula is in shock tonight after the brutal bashing of a young woman. 20-year-old Penny Hill was dumped and left for dead by the road outside town. Despite two inquests and multiple rewards, the killer was never caught. You believe she could have known her killer? Oh, I've been out of doubt. Penny Hill, only 20 years old, had been brutally bashed and left for dead, propped like a discarded mannequin against a gatepost in country New South Wales in Coola. Almost three decades later, police are no closer to finding the person responsible for Penny's death. You never give up hope that one day somebody, you know, will come forward or someone that knows something. In the final episode of The Rockstar and The Nanny, we're going to go through the main suspects, just what the police know and what our investigation has uncovered. Joining me in this roundtable discussion are Alex Cullen, a reporter with Channel 7's Sunday Night Program, who has covered this case and spoken to key players. Hello, Alex. G'day, Marianne. Thank you very much for joining us. And also with us is our very own producer, Cherie Gibson, who you will have heard interviewing person of interest, Shane Williams. Thanks for being here, Cherie. Thank you. Alex, you've covered a lot of true crime at Sunday night. What makes this story so different? Look, stories stay with you, and, and this one definitely stayed with me because it was quite close to home. I grew up not far from Kula, and, and I know people just like Penny Hill. I, I know families just like the Hills. So I'm very familiar with the area. I'm familiar with Tamworth, Armadale, all these sort of regional towns that feature in this story. And also I think the, the, the bungling of this investigation as well, that, that, that was so frustrating for both me and, and the police that are now investigating this. And also it's, it's such a fascinating case in that it's a bit of a, a country Cluedo in terms of suspects. There's the chef, there's the rock star, the rock star's wife, uh, the boyfriend, um, the golfer, and all these people in the vicinity at the time, and uh, it's just one of those 
incredible stories that still still remains unsolved. It is a bit complicated, isn't it? A bit yeah. of a who's done it. Extremely, yeah. Cherie, you've gone through all of the evidence and your opinion has actually changed along the way on who possibly did it. My theory changes on a daily basis with this one. <laughs> like Alex, I grew up in a country town not far from there and I actually know some of the cooler locals. So I find it really frustrating that with two coronial inquests, three or four people of interest and still no answers. It's decades later, it's very, very frustrating, obviously for the people involved, but when I'm ringing people and they say things to me like, oh, look, this is so old, just leave it alone, they're obviously not thinking about anyone but themselves because Jeanette needs answers. Penny deserves the justice and I just there's just so many grey areas, it's very frustrating. Before we get on to our first suspect, I'd just like to remind everyone how Penny was found. School teacher Susan Brown was driving on a wet and cold wintry morning in the small New South Wales country town of Coola when she spotted something on the side of the road. As she pulled up and took a closer look, she realised it was a girl, slumped against the gate of a large rural property. I said to her, help, help's on its way, help's coming. It seemed like ages before anyone came. And while I was standing there, I was trying to think what's happened. And nothing made sense. I thought, she's fallen off, you've fallen out of a truck, you know. Someone's mm. pushed her out of a truck or she's fallen out of a truck. Mm. But she wasn't dishevelled. Her clothes hadn't been dishevelled at all. Um, I thought, oh, she's fallen off a horse. But no, she had Ugg boots on and her Ugg boots were clean. And just walking to where she was, it was that horrible black heavy clay and it was wet. And my shoes must have been, you know, three inches higher, caked in this mud just walking there. But her shoes were clean. And no matter what scenario I could think of, you know, I even thought of hang gliding. Had she been hang gliding? And but no, you wouldn't hang glide in in Ugg boots, and you'd be more dishevelled. You know, there was nothing I could think of. Yeah. But strangely enough, my brain would not go to bad men that someone purposely done this to her. And I think now I must have been so naive to think that. You know, I kept trying to think of something logical, some accident. Yeah. But nothing made sense. Nothing at all made sense. Uh, Cherie, you've researched every element of this case. What theories have you heard about the way Penny was placed? Well, after talking to Susan Brown, it's actually contradicting what you read. Um, so if you look at all the print articles, she was propped up against a gate post or a fence post. But Susan Brown was an amazing lady to have found Penny and acted so fast and with such great instincts on that day because, in essence, she preserved a crime scene. But she says that Penny was actually laying in the ground and when she was moved, so much so you could see the indent of where her head and where her back was on the grass because it was a dewy, cold, frosty morning. I found and tracked down the doctor who arrived with the first responders on the day and he was telling me that when he attended to Penny, she was laying on the ground. Um, and this came up quite a lot, so you have to believe the people who were there. Interestingly, the doctor also revealed to me that he was the person who removed the cord from around Penny's neck. So we have not heard this before, and it's very interesting because Penny was actually strangled as well as beaten, and this was the actual cord from the kettle or the jug that came out of her motel room at the Black Stump Motel. 
And early reports did say that the cord was actually found in Penny's hand, but you're saying the doctor said that wasn't the case at all. Well, I think Susan Brown told us in an earlier episode that she thought it was a beeper, which is another word for a pager, but that was actually the end of the cord that plugs into the wall. That was found near Penny's hand and the ambulance officers did confirm that. The actual cord was still around her neck. Okay, well, let's get to our first suspect, Cole Bajant. Former drummer with Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, Cole and his wife Barbara moved their young family to Kula for a tree change. They were the owner-operators of the Black Stump Motel and they employed Penny to be their nanny to their three small children. At the second inquest into Penny's death, it was claimed Cole Bajant had a reputation for violence and sexual harassment. Former employee Tracy Lansdowne alleged in court she was sacked by Barbara two weeks before Penny started after a drunken Colin had touched her inappropriately by putting his hands inside her top and pants. The inquest also heard allegations that Cole had a shocking temper and had physically abused all three of his wives, including Barbara. These allegations against Colin are unproven. Alex Cole didn't take part in the two coronial inquests. When you're a person of interest, that's not a good look, is it? Absolutely not, no, and um, instructed by his lawyer, I'm sure. But um, we wanted to ask him about his involvement, alleged involvement as well, in our story on Sunday night back in 2015. And um, the man is elusive. The man um, has a temper, as we now know. And I sort of copped a bit of that when we tried to contact him. I tried to ring him at home and he did answer the phone. Uh, so I did know it was him. As soon as I identified myself, Alex Cullen from Sunday night, he quickly hung up. So we decided to pay him a visit and I knocked on the door and of course no one answered, but we sort of hung around and then his wife came out and I sort of went up to her and tried to, uh, to ask her if we could talk to Kyle and she said he wasn't home. And I said, well, hang on, he's just answered the phone. Of course he's home. But there was, there was nothing, there was no uh, response whatsoever. And it was very frustrating because we wanted to ask him about these allegations. And, uh, and I know Cherie's had a bit of trouble with him as well. I have, because we've approached him many times yeah. in terms of the podcast to give him an opportunity to have a voice. But again, I, I was abused by his current wife um, and he has never come to the door, never shown his face to me. But I've given him ample opportunities, leaving him notes. They are very well aware of how to find me. And I do, I urge him to, after all these years, it is very frustrating. If he's done nothing wrong, I don't understand why people don't speak. That's yeah, the go on the front foot, as we'll find out soon from a, another a person of interest who, who did go on the front foot. But, um, yeah, as you say, it's, it's not a good look. It's never a good look. Come out and say I had nothing to do with this. I know that he did go and did appear on a television program not long after the, uh, the case back in 1991. He did say that he had nothing to do with it, but we haven't heard from him since, and um, I think that's quite telling. We've actually managed to track that down, so this is actually what happened. We had nothing to do with it. May God strike my children dead. Not a thing to do with it. Who killed Penny Hill? I don't know. If I knew, I would tell. Cherie, why is Cole a person of interest? I think the spotlight went to Cole because first and foremost, he was the employer of Penny. The coronial inquests have actually now scratched the surface on his background and we can see that he is allegedly abused former wives. He has staff members coming forward from the Black Stump Motel actually claiming, uh, alleging as well, abuse. And I just don't think the coroner out of either of those coronial inquests believe that his behaviour 
and that his cooperation level was to be commended. I mean, that's why he's still a person of interest and Cole is very well aware of that, that he's still a person of interest. No doubt. Now, with Cole's wife, Barbara, she provided an alibi for her husband, but her evidence has changed over the years. Yes. Now, Barbara, actually, the second coronial inquest was brought to a halt because she was told to go and seek legal counsel because I think it was attending to be a part of her memory that she couldn't quite rely on her memory from 1991 to the second coronial inquest, which was some decade later. And she changed her timings. So in the first coronial inquest, she may have said he was home by 11. The second one, she wasn't quite sure. It may have been midnight. So it did then put another shadow of doubt over Cole and his movements on that night. Alex, tell us about Cole's van and why that could hold a vital clue. Yeah, this van's really interesting. We now know that he got back from a hunting trip at about 10pm that night. And a Mr. Stephen Davis told the court he woke to the sound of a van door sliding closed and a car driving off in the middle of the night. So he and Mrs. Davis lived adjacent to the Blackstump Motel on the night Penny was beaten. Now, the former motor mechanic turned Anglican priest said he believed the van was parked outside his home and it could have been the same van owned by Colin and Barbara. We know that Colin Bagent used the van to pick up stock for the motel. Now, Mr. Davis says he believed the door was being closed very carefully with care and this is what he told the court, this was very slow and a click, not a jump. Uh, He also went on to say, something in my mind said, that's odd. So he then said he heard the engine start and the car idled slowly before driving towards the Coolar Township. He went on to say, the motor didn't rev at all, and with me being a mechanic, I thought that was very unusual. He must remember that detail, hey? Yeah, and we also know the van was parked in a different spot the next morning from the night before, which I think is really important too. Mm, That is very important. Cherie, the evidence seems to point to Penny being abducted from her hotel and killed in a different location to where she was actually found. Plausible, a van was used to transport her body, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, because there was no crime scene. And to date, the police don't actually know where this happened to Penny. There is no specific crime scene and and that's another frustrating, must be very frustrating for the investigators, but the motel room did not show any signs that there had been a battle. A struggle of any kind. No struggle for Penny. There was a spittle of blood in the ensuite motel room bathroom, but that is nothing compared to the injuries that she sustained. What about uh, Cole's alleged history of violence towards women? I think it's fair to say that It is alleged that Colin was actually abusive towards previous partners and I personally have spoken to family members of Barbara Bajant's family and they have confirmed that Barbara did have an eardrum burst in a fight with Cole. And just to add to that, where this crime happened, of course we don't know, but in the motel room itself we know that the toilet seat was up, which indicates to me that a male was in that room at some point during that night. Mm. We also know that a, a letter was found that was addressed to Penny's boyfriend at the time It was dated the morning that she was found. And unfortunately for investigators, that letter was discarded. It was ripped up, thrown in the bin. And And the the, contents never recorded, which is amazing. And the contents never recorded, yeah. I've also heard that um, one of the cops used that toilet while they're investigating, which is just unbelievable to me. That's a crime scene as far as anyone's concerned. And yeah, as you say, the, the contents were never recorded. We don't know what was in that letter 
and we never will. Vital evidence and mistakes were made right from the start of that first investigation. Oh, absolutely. And it's so frustrating for the investigators now. And it's so frustrating for us. Mm. I can see it at your face, Sheree. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> the mishandling of the case after the uh, crime is certainly something that stays with this crime. The other interesting thing that I'm just going to come back to is the fact that, of course, Penny's Ugg boots were virtually brand new and they were completely unmarked when she was found. Now, you know, Susan Brown says that as she walked from the car to Penny's body, her shoes were caked in thick mud and yet Penny's were in pristine condition with not a mark on them. So obviously she has been taken out of that motel room, she has been assaulted somewhere and placed by the side of the road. Carefully lifted mm. That's over right. to that that spot. That's right. But she did have mud and grass stain marks on her knees. So I'm wondering, did she fight or fall, fall to towards the end there? And they've then turned her over, maybe. That's a mystery as to why her boots were so clean. Yeah. Since Penny's death, Cole and Barbara separated and one of his sons has died. A few years ago, Barbara died of a brain tumour. The family was torn apart by this incident. It's important to note Cole Bagent has denied any involvement in Penny's death. At the coronial inquest in 2012, his solicitor said outside the court the matter has affected their lives every day since it occurred and they are deeply upset by it. A suspect number two is Bob Lee. Bob Lee was the motel's cook and he was at the motel the night Penny was last seen alive. He lived in the caravan park close by and he had a criminal record. On the night of Penny's death, Lee says he'd gone shooting on a nearby property with Cole Bagent. Witnesses at a party being held nearby say they saw Lee return to his caravan and he never came back out. Cherie, this would seem to clear him then, wouldn't it? Well, you'd think so, but Bob was involved in a fatal single-vehicle car accident in October 1991, and that's just four months after Penny died. He was driving on a road that he knew very well, and he rolled his vehicle and subsequently he died at the scene. Police have always been very suspicious of this and trust me, the whole of Kula are suspicious of this. Mm. Did he kill himself over what he'd done? The timing was so close to After Penny, everyone has wondered and, and I have not talked to a single soul who do not bring up the fact that Bob had died so soon after and, and it just raises suspicion around him given his criminal background and everything that people like to gossip in a small town about him. It, well, that's the thing, isn't it? It seems more like gossip than actual evidence, doesn't it? Absolutely. But mm. there is the story that his dog survived and uh, people suggest that he stopped the car, let his dog out and then had the car accident. So was, was it deliberate? We'll never know. He's taken those secrets to the grave. I must admit, I don't know about you, Alex, but I did always think that was a bit suspicious, Bob's accident. Yeah, me too. Um, you, but we'll, we'll never know. That's that's the other and yet another frustrating thing about this case. You know, he might have owed people money, you know, from his vast criminal record. We, we just don't know. And small town gossip. Uh, I come from a small town. Cherie comes from a small town. The the amount of stories that, her, that have gone around about this particular case is just unbelievable. As for Bob, we'll never know. And, and again, as I said, frustrating. Alex, in the coronial inquest, Lee's neighbour, Mr Terence Baker, gave evidence about something that Lee had confided in him. What was that? Yeah, look, um, counsel assisting the coroner, Warwick Hunt, uh, put to Mr Baker, and I quote, he told you the motel was owned by someone who was formerly in a rock band 
and that that person, the motel owner, had been sleeping with the girl in question, the girl being Penny May Hill. Mr Baker agreed with the statement. Hunt then continued, he told you the motel owner's wife had found out and the wife was the person responsible for the girl's death. And again, Mr Baker agreed this was the case. Well, that's pretty damning evidence. Do you think, uh, so then Barbara becomes suspect number three? Yeah, yeah well, you'd, it's not as simple as that, of course. But you have to think, Penny is only in town for 48 hours. Now, mm. Cole, oh, you know, look, he may be a fast mover, but that just doesn't seem plausible to me that Penny, she's a green country girl, she's only 20, first real boyfriend, um, moved away from home. That would be the furthest thing from her mind. Yeah. And, and I just don't think, time was on Cole's side to make those moves to have an affair with Penny. I just don't think that's plausible. Mm. No, I don't either. And uh, she'd only been with, with Shane Williams about three weeks. So it was a very, it was a new boyfriend. Yeah. And, and we know that she'd been at the pub. Uh, she'd only, as you say, she'd been there two, three days. And she'd spent that first day down at the pub having a couple of lemon squashes. She wasn't even drinking. Playing darts. S- playing darts, mm. you know. So there's, I don't think that's plausible either. I just, I, I'm not going to accept that. No, no, it doesn't sound right. After speaking with Barbara's family, she was not a jealous wife. She, she, she knew of Cole's attitude and and how he he played. And even um, one of the staff members at the Black Stump Motel was quoted throughout the coronial inquest as saying that Cole was a handsy man, but it was only ever a hand on her arm or any something like that. So it's he said, she said. Mm. Mm. With Barbara now deceased, though, she can't defend herself. Uh, but, Cherie, there are definitely some unanswered questions here, aren't there? There is, and it's such a shame that Barbara's legacy will now be left in silence. And I do hope that one day one of her family members or, or a friend or, or someone, even Cole, if he, uh, if he so decides to change his mind, that, you know, she changed her statement because time and memory got the better of her. Cole's alleged affairs, I mean, that all came out in the coronial inquest, which may have even surprised Barbara. We will never know because mm. she's never answered those questions. And Penny didn't move out of that motel room in a hurry. That was a decision that was made between Barbara and Penny prior to her employment, that she would live with the family in their home, in the residence, to look after the children during the week, and she would have a motel room on the weekends. It's just that particular weekend when she arrived on the Friday, dropped off by her loving parents, that the town was so busy with so many things going on that the motel room was not available to her until that Sunday night. So her last and final night was her first night in that motel room on her own. I think that's one of the things that's always struck me about this case. You know, for a tiny town, a tiny country town of Kula with a couple of hundred people that swelled that particular weekend to having thousands of people there coming from as far as New Zealand. You know, there were two local football matches. There was a golf tournament. Tennis tournament. Tennis tournament. So much activity on that particular weekend, which has obviously been one of the most challenging factors about this case for police. It could not have been planned any worse, could it, Alex? No, I mean, growing true. up in a country town, mm. it was a big thing just to have one football game yeah. happening. Yeah. <laughs> Still is. But to have so many sporting events happening, and I think the population near tripled mm. with people coming and going, which obviously is a frustrating factor for investigators still to this day. Let's move on to suspect number four. Now, Ross Kiddo was in Coolar for that golf tournament that we were just talking about with his then-girlfriend, Madeline Fian. In the second coronial inquest, she went on the stand and told Tamworth's coroner's court that Kiddo sat on her and pinned her to the ground with his knees before pressing his fingers around her neck on the night before 
20-year-old Penny Hill was discovered unconscious on a roadside. The court also heard Blackstunt Motel owner Colin Bagent was among staff members who heard her screams and came to rescue Miss Fian. Alex, this certainly shows a violent side if this version of events is true, would you say? Yeah, yeah, yet another suspect, another person of interest in town that night. We know that Ms Fian said she believed Mr Kitto wanted to kill her and that he could have been the one who beat Penny Hill. That night she stayed at a staff member's house but said that when she went back to the hotel room, she scoped it out to see if there was anything at all that linked him with Penny's bashing. And I've spoken with Madeline, and this is not the first occurrence of domestic violence within their relationship. Mm. So, I mean, Madeline was obviously scared that night, and it was actually a staff member who also took Mr Kiddo down to the cooler hospital. So everyone was involved and everyone saw it that night. And you have to feel for Madeline because she wouldn't be involved in the podcast because she still worries about Mr Kiddo even contacting her now. Yeah, she seemed almost frightened, didn't she? Mm. Mm. But she drove back to Sydney that night with Mr Kiddo. Yeah, she said she drove back with him because she was in, uh, her words, stay alive mode and thought Mr Kiddo would come after her if she ran away. And yet Kiddo's never given any evidence at the inquests. No, the magistrate said uh, the legislation meant the court could not compel him to attend the inquest. And Kiddo's never appeared at any inquest, which I think is interesting. But I think this is important, though, that he has cooperated with New South Wales Police Uh, who have gone over to visit him at his home in New Zealand. And supplied DNA. Yeah. Cherie, there was more evidence from Madeline, wasn't there, that brings us back to Barbara Bagent. Yes. Madeline, the next morning when Penny's body had been found and she was being taken up to call a hospital, overheard Barbara Bagent and a staff member at the motel talking and Barbara was to be heard saying something to the likes of, I've got to sack the nanny or I want to sack the nanny. Now, we have never met Barbara and we don't know her attitude there, but I would think that after talking with family members and people off the record about this particular detail, in the first 24 hours, Barbara had already made up her mind, unfortunately, that Penny was not going to get this job. She was not going to see past that trial period of one week. Mm. Unfortunately, and as we've heard from Shane Williams, that Penny did ring up and did admit to him that she'd taken the children for a walk and hadn't actually informed the parents, which as all parents that we are, that would be a worry. And now Barbara did actually worry that she was not responsible enough to take on this job looking after her three children. They were only age seven, four and one. So it's quite a handful for any 20-year-old. So Barbara was never going to keep Penny any longer than a week, unfortunately, and she was going to be sent back home with a reference. And, and that's unfortunate, Barbara's timing in telling that staff member, given the outcome. But maybe Barbara didn't actually even know the severity of it at that stage. We know that Penny spoke to her boyfriend that night and was very, very upset. He he actually told me that he tried to encourage her and, and tried to, uh, you know, to cheer her up. She was very upset that she didn't get the job. and She would have been upset that she disappointed the Bajants, no doubt, and she would have felt like she'd done the wrong thing, maybe by taking the kids out. Yeah, and this was a young girl, well to defeat, 20 years old, first job. She'd, first time she's left home. First time yeah. she's left home. Freedom. <laughs> yeah, and she'd studied nannying for six months. and At the local Tamworth. TAFE. Yeah, the local TAFE in yeah. Tamworth. And so this was a, this was her first foray into a, into a full-time job and it didn't end well, unfortunately. Now to our final suspect, the boyfriend. Shane Williams only became a person of interest after two coronial inquiries failed to solve the case. 
Williams was almost 300 kilometres away from the murder scene at his home in Armidale, seemingly giving him the perfect alibi. But years later, police began to wonder if he had driven to be with Penny that fateful night. Cherie, why did investigators start suspecting Williams? Now, this happened straight after the second coronial inquest, and I'm very interested in discussing this with you, Alex, because... (laughs) When you interviewed Sham Shane, mm. he said it doesn't take blind Freddy to realise the difference between a Commodore and a Stanza. Now, Barbara Bajant's evidence was that she saw a dark-coloured car, suspected it to be a Commodore. Now, as a woman, and I've looked at the back of a Stanza and the back of a Commodore, mm. in the early hours of the morning, I could have mistaken those cars. He claims the difference is the 1.6 to the 1.4. That doesn't mean a thing to me Um, and maybe not to Barbara. We'll never know. But he became a person of interest, didn't he, because his car was then in the spotlight. The second team of investigators, Jason Darcy and his team, did suspect that, hang on, we can't hone in here on it only being a Commodore. She Mm. could be wrong. It may have been a stanza. Yeah, a Datsun stanza. And it was seen driving through the car park without its lights on, which she thought was very, very strange. But uh, yeah, as Shane told me in our interview, you'd have to be blind Freddy to work out, you know, that, that, that a Datsun stanza is very, very different to a to a big, wide Holden Commodore. And Shane actually was dumbfounded. When I was speaking to him, he was in shock that they actually suspected him mm. when that first came about. Did you talk about that with him? He's a man that talks a lot. Did you find that? He talks, he would talk under a layer of wet cement with a mouthful of sayos. He's just one of those guys that just, and talks round and round and round. And it it gets quite frustrating. And I know it was very frustrating for the investigators as well, uh, who kept coming back to him. He was a family man. He is a family man. He worked at the Salvation Army up in northern New South Wales. I just found him to be not as smart as he thought he was, really. Would you agree with that? I would say that he comes across very polite. Yeah. I didn't really know how I felt when I first started these conversations with Shane because I was trying to keep my mind open, but there are a lot of pointers coming back to him, which I find surprising that he finds that surprising, that he can't see that maybe he should not talk, but his heart's in the right place. And because he keeps saying that, I want to believe it. I want to believe that he's speaking for the right reasons to give Jeanette justice and to keep the memory alive of Penny. And maybe it will jolt someone's memory, but it is very hard to have a conversation with him. But he did actually confess to me that he has been diagnosed with a form of ADD and that is part of his problem, that Mm -hmm. he goes off on too many tangents. He does speak from the heart, but he does struggle with details. And that is very, very frustrating, as I saw when you interviewed him on Sunday night. To not know where you were when a significant event happened, Yeah, I, I just, I can't forgive that. Yeah, I, I don't buy that, that he doesn't remember where he was that night. I mean, we all remember where we were for significant events. I remember where I was when Princess Diana died. Um, mm. And I'm sure he can remember where he was when his girlfriend was bashed to within an inch of her life. Actually, Alex, let's listen to an exchange that you actually had with Williams during your interview with him. Look, I have nothing to do with her death at all in any way. If I did, I wouldn't be here now. I really wouldn't be staring into your eyes telling you that. I can understand you asking those questions. I can appreciate people asking me those questions. I understand what it seems like. But I'm not a violent person in any way. Did you bash Penny Hill? No, I had no involvement in her death in any way or form. 
And at that period of time, I'd never been to Kula. Did you kill Penny Hill? Had no involvement in her death in any way or form. Never harmed her, never physically harmed her. Had no involvement in any way. Alex, there are lots of suspects who will not engage with the media. Shane says the reason he puts himself through this is because it might actually help solve the mystery of Penny's death. Do you think that's why Shane spoke to you? <sighs> yeah, I do. And, and I think we should also note that he visited uh, Jeanette and Felix, uh, Penny's parents, in the years after this. I think that's important to know as well. Um, he hasn't just gone to ground completely with the hills anyway. Uh, look, I think part of it also, a big part of it was sort of in absolving himself of any wrongdoing here. I think his attitude was, if I speak to the media, I can't be guilty. I can't have anything to do with this. And if I speak to the media, they, they won't think I'm guilty. And I just want to read you another quote, quote he, he said to me, I'm not a violent person. I have nothing to do with her death in any way. And if I did, I wouldn't be here now. So he was saying, look... I, if I've done this, there's no way I'm doing what I'm doing now, which is sitting in here in this chair in front of you, talking to you on camera. Talking to you. But to Should... keep that discussion going, can I just say, Alex, mm. play the devil's advocate. Yeah. Was that his conscience talking? Is that why he kept visiting Jeanette and Felix? Again, is it to say, I didn't do this? Is it to sort of get take the heat off him? There is, there is that question. I've thought about this so many times. Did he get in the car that night and drive from Armadale across... To Kula, it's 286 kilometres, which is nothing out there, and it's it's just up the road from where, where we're from. Um, could he have driven over there that night? We know that Penny told him what room she was in. We know that she told him where in the motel the room was. We know that the toilet seat was up in that room. We know a male had been in that room. Could he have come across there? Could he have taken her for a drive? Could he have bashed her in the car, then then thrown her out, then driven all the way back to, to Armadale? We don't know. I even well, asked Jason him Jason Darcy yeah. has, you know, has said that he has done that trip because he it was has. the suggestion that it couldn't have been done in the same night. Yeah. But he has done that trip at several times of the day and night and at different speeds. And he says it is very possible that that trip was made. And even Shane Williams in our interview, he says... I didn't think it was possible, but I've done it many times now myself. He claims that he'd never been to Kula before this incident, yeah. but he has now. And he even said, when I put it to him, I say to you that you did get out of bed after that phone call and you drove over because you were not happy that Penny was in a new country town, enjoying life there, and uh, you know she's with males that you don't know. Mm. He did point out that there was no 24-hour service stations in that time, back in that day, but a jerry can on the back seat would have fixed that. And it is all very possible that he could have driven over and back. Cherie, there's some suggestion that Shane stalked an ex-girlfriend, a claim that he strenuously denies. Stalking is not the word that Shane would use for that. However, probably being politically correct today, we would put the word stalking in that sentence. It was a girlfriend. Now, you have to remember that Shane and this girl were, they were only teenagers. They were 18 when they separated. She decided to call off the relationship. They were salvationists and it was a long-term relationship. We're talking a couple of years here that they went out. Now, in my research, I don't believe that this was a sexual relationship. It was just a courting um, two young people. When she decided to call that relationship off, Shane went round, found where she was staying or whoever's house she was in, and he knocked on the door. Now, for her to feel that threatened by what Shane says was just a knock on the door and he wanted to have a word with her, that she called the police, that is a very different story to what Shane says. But he did talk with police that night 
it never went any further and Shane does not like the fact that uh, I put it to him that, you know, he stalked her because that's not a word that he would use. There are a lot of suspects here. Do you think this case will ever be solved, guys? Alex? Oh, God, I hope so. I, I really hope for Jeanette Hill, who is a mother who is he's desperately upset still all these years later. Of course she is. I know Penny's father, Felix, died without ever knowing who killed his daughter. This broke him, absolutely broke him. And, and interviewing him at their home in Narrabri at the time, he was just so broken, so devastated. And I said to him, you know, Daddy's girl, he said, yeah, yeah. And he, it was almost what he didn't say. He spoke louder than what he did. The pain in this man's voice and, yeah, dying without ever knowing, it's, it's, it's so desperately sad. I really hope we do. You know, as I say, I, I know people like Penny. I, I know families like the hills where I grew up. So it is close to home for me, and I and I, I just I, I hope so, so much that we do find the bastard who did this. And Jeanette agreed to do the podcast with you, Marianne, because she she wanted to keep this alive and to jog someone's memory out there to come forward finally because she can't believe after 27 years that she's still asking these questions. And Jeanette's a salt-of-the-earth country woman, and yeah. as you say, Alex, we know plenty of people like this, and all you want to do is help her. But I sadly think, um, and I'm, I'm an optimistic person and I'd like to agree with Alex, but I just think sadly no. I don't know whether we will actually come up with any answers because unfortunately even staff members at the Black Stump Motel, for them to hang up on me now when I'm calling them just simply for a research call because too many years have passed, they think we should leave it alone, well, they need to think about Jeanette because each year passes, she still doesn't get Penny back. Years have passed by and yet without a resolution, and I won't use the word closure because for a family in a situation like this, Alex, you know, well, interviewing so many victims of crime, mm. there is no such thing as closure. What they're looking for is a resolution of some kind. Now, after all these years, Jeanette has been listening to lots of different theories. The people in Kula are still talking about different theories. You know, there's even the theory floating, was it even somebody local? that wasn't known to police that did this to Penny. Yes. And those rumours will continue until somebody develops a conscience of some kind and comes forward with some information that they might not think is relevant to the police but could actually hold the vital piece of information that the police need, that Jason Darcy needs, to nail this case. The locals who haven't spoken and the people of interest who are too stubborn to speak, it might just be that tiny bit of information which seems insignificant to them. It's the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle that the team of investigators vitally need to make, right. make closure. And you mentioned Jason Darcy there. Let's spare a thought for this guy. He's worked so hard on this case. He gave his all for this case. He got to know the Hills so well. They even said he's like family, yeah. you know. And I, I just hope for him too that we, we can find out who did this because he just put so much work into this. He has been a champion of this cause for, mm. for the years that you and I have both known him now. And he doesn't want to give up on this case. He, he too wants some answers for Penny's family. And uh, as I said, if there's anyone out there who does develop a conscience or has any bit of information, they really do need to come forward now is the time. In 2015, testing of male DNA found on the clothing Penny Hill was wearing when she was fatally bashed was under the microscope at FAS, the new state-of-the-art forensic laboratories in Lidcombe in Western Sydney. To date, nothing has ever been released or reported about these findings. Penny's death has had a profound effect on the people of Kula. 
Even to this day, and even though just about everyone in the town has their own story to tell about this case, very few want to speak on the record about it. Just why they won't speak remains a mystery in itself. Alex and Cherie, thank you very much for your insights. We really appreciate your involvement. Pleasure. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of The Rockstar and The Nanny for now. If you have any information that could help in this podcast, please email us at tips at pacificmags.com.au. We'll resume this podcast if and when there are any new developments. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.